it's crazy that we'd be taking a recess. Let's not take any recesses. Let's work. Let's work every day. Let's work weekends. Let's work till we get the job done. Apparently, the majority leader made the decision that it was more important for senators to be home on vacation, home playing golf, home doing anything, but being here on the floor of the Senate doing the people's business. President Obama, and, and for that matter, Hillary Clinton and the Democratic Party, they're so out of touch with where the American people are right now. He go, goes and plays golf hundreds of times with his buddies. Um, he, he is not focused on the people who are hurting, who are paying the cost. We got a job to do and we got a short window of time and, and, and so we ought to stop taking recesses, stop taking time off and just keep going until we get also, it done. Apparently playing a game of pool is a higher priority for this president uh, than it would be to go and see the humanitarian crisis he's created. This is Michael Cohen, and you're listening to the Mea Culpa Podcast. With Donald Trump's impeachment now over, the lawsuits, indictments, and investigations long promised have finally begun to land at his doorstep. First out of the gate last week was a civil lawsuit filed by the NAACP on behalf of Mississippi Representative Benny Thompson. A new lawsuit against former President Donald Trump and Rudy Giuliani will try to hold them responsible for the assault on the Capitol. The filing from the NAACP and a Mississippi congressman say they violated the Ku Klux Klan Act of 1871 by conspiring to incite the riot on January 6th. The lawsuit contends that Trump and Rudy Giuliani violated the Ku Klux Klan Act, an 1871 statute that includes protections against violent conspiracies that interfered with Congress's constitutional duties. The suit also names the Proud Boys, the far-right nationalist group, and the Oath Keepers militia group. The legal action accuses Trump, Giuliani, and the two groups of conspiring to incite a violent riot at the Capitol with the goal of preventing Congress from certifying the election. He's absolutely right. Uh, A number of uh, numerous um, uh, groups have used civil laws of the United States to go after these racist groups. Sound familiar? It should. The civil case mirrors almost to a T the case the House impeachment managers just tried in the Senate. But this time, there are some big differences. First off, impeachment is a political process, so the concept of double jeopardy does not apply, meaning Trump can be tried again on the exact same charges in a court of law. What the impeachment trial did was provide the framework for Donald Trump's future criminal prosecution in state and local court as well as ammunition for civil lawsuits similar to that of Mr. Thompson's. Trump may have won the impeachment battle, but it was at great personal cost, and he will likely lose the longer war to keep himself out of prison. The fact is, each of these cases to come will be built upon work done in prior investigations. So this coming lawsuit, while not a criminal proceeding, should send a collective shiver down the spine of Team Trump. Now, for the first time, he will be without his precious executive privilege, which shielded him from indictment and testimony during his presidency. In the coming civil trial, it's not necessarily the punitive damages that matter, or even the judge's declaration that Trump is guilty as charged, but what will emerge in the discovery process. Congress, it's much easier to find them civilly liable because the standard there is what lawyers call preponderance of evidence, which means more likely than not, that's a lower standard than to convict them in a criminal case. The other important thing about a civil 
litigation is that Trump and Giuliani could be subject to depositions where they have to answer under all questions about their role in the insurrection. Mitch McConnell said that former presidents are not immune from being held accountable in criminal and civil court. This will be one test case to see whether that's true. Trump is likely to be deposed, as is Rudy Giuliani, and for the first time, we will hear their testimony, but under oath. That alone is worth the price of admission. Then comes the vast accumulation of emails, texts, and other relevant documents denied to the House impeachment managers, whose case was largely built upon what was available in the public record. True, that alone was powerful enough to produce what should have been a unanimous guilty verdict in the Senate. But like I said before, impeachment is inherently political, and no matter how conclusive the evidence, even if there was a video of Trump smashing windows himself with the Proud Boys, there would always be a core group of senators who would vote to acquit him. But now, in a court of law, these folks are gone. Trump's executive privilege is gone, and so is the red wall which shielded him and a long list of co-conspirators from being compelled to testify. At long last, my friends, the emperor has no clothes, and I for one cannot wait for this to begin. Trump, while not technically barred from office, is about to become a full-time defendant. Good luck, buddy. You're going to need all the help that you can get. In the criminal justice system, the people are represented by two separate yet equally important groups. The police who investigate crime and the district attorneys who prosecute the offenders. These are their stories. One of Donald Trump's most ardent supporters throughout the impeachment trial was Texas Senator Ted Cruz. This despite Trump's complete and total humiliation of Cruz in 2016, when the two faced off against one another in the Republican primaries. Donald, you're a sniveling coward and leave Heidi the hell alone. It was breathtakingly nasty, even for Donald Trump. He basically cuckolded and emasculated Cruz in front of the entire nation by mocking his wife's appearance and insinuating that Cruz's father was part of a Cuban conspiracy to assassinate JFK. His father was with Lee Harvey Oswald prior to Oswald's being... Uh, you know, shot. I mean, the whole thing is ridiculous. What, what, what is this right prior to his being shot? And nobody even brings it up. Cruz, who has always been widely loathed in the Senate by both Democrats and Republicans alike, refashioned himself as a born-again MAGA warrior and tried to shackle himself to Trump's personality. Recent polling shows that 39% of Americans believe the election that just occurred, quote, was rigged. I personally can't fucking stand the man and believe he is part of the cancer that has beset the modern GOP. His sanctimonious moralizing and bullshit Fox appearances where he has anointed himself as the ideological and intellectual leader of Trumpism is infuriating. Plus, he is the kind of face you just want to fucking punch. God damn it, I don't know what it is about your face. But I want to deliver one of these right in your suck hole. Is there anything I can do to work on that? No, so you not can... really. It's your face. Cruz's propagation of Trump's big lie around election fraud and his enabling of Trump's most dangerous inclinations is the culmination of a twisted bully-loser dynamic that has gone on for the past four years and represents the high watermark of Ted Cruz's complete and total schmuckery. You wrote, here's the thing you have to understand about Ted Cruz. I like Ted Cruz more than most of my other colleagues like Ted Cruz, and I hate Ted Cruz. That's 
Yeah. Well, that that's about uh, he's sort of the exception that proves the rule. He's kind of a toxic uh, guy in an office, the guy who microwaves fish. This man is a boil on the ass of the American body politic. Well, late last week, to continue the gross metaphor, the boil popped as Cruz blundered into a scandal of his own self-making when he was literally caught red-handed flying to Cancun for an early spring break with his wife and daughters while his own state literally froze to death. Senator Ted Cruz, he is now facing a whole lot of questions after he was spotted on a plane traveling to Cancun, Mexico, in the midst of this unfolding crisis in his home state of Texas. If you go on social media, you will see social media users posting multiple pictures of the senator and his family in the Houston airport waiting to board their flight. If you're wondering who the most hated politician in America was right now, it's not Mitch McConnell anymore, but it's Ted Cruz. Let's take a look at the tape for this one, as it's the perfect comeuppance for Cruz in nearly every way. Flying Ted, and homage to Donald J. Trump's Lion Ted nickname, began trending on Twitter. TMZ, the celebrity website, published photographs showing a Patagonia fleece-clad Cruz waiting for his flight, hanging out in the United Club lounge, and reading his phone from a seat in Economy Plus. Texas Monthly even offered a list of obscenities to mutter against Cruz if you happen to see him in the airport or on the street. Need to get away from it all, but only for like four hours? Then come to Cancun, the perfect vacation spot for your half-day getaway. Grab a taxi from the airport for the whole family. Then grab a moped for when you have to speed back to the airport in shame. Enjoy our beaches, nightclubs, and... Uh-oh, your chief of staff is calling. And with our new Bad Optics package, you'll get same-day round-trip tickets, enough sunscreen to protect you for four minutes, and a pre-written statement saying you were always planning to be in Cancun just for breakfast. Cancun, what the f*** were you thinking? Instead of owning up for the mistake, he instead compounded his misery by throwing his own daughters under the bus insisting it was they who wanted to leave and that he was just being a good dad. Whether the decision uh, to go was tone deaf, look, it, it was obviously a mistake. And in hindsight, I, I wouldn't have done it. Um, I was trying to be a dad. And, and all of us have made decisions. When you've got two girls who have been cold for two, two days and haven't had heater power and they're saying, hey, look, we don't have school. Why don't we go... Let's get out of here. Text messages sent from Mrs. Cruz to friends and Houston neighbors on Wednesday revealed the last-minute trip. Their house was freezing, as Mrs. Cruz put it, and she proposed a getaway until Sunday. Mrs. Cruz invited others to join them at the Ritz-Carlton in Cancun, where they had stayed many times, noting the room price of this week of only $309 per night and its good security. Let them eat cake, said Marie Antoinette, as her own people starved. Might this become the MAGA equivalent as the conservative queen of Texas has been unmasked? So, I mean, this line that Ted Cruz is giving is just so hollow and so empty. Cruz has spent much of his career gleefully pointing out the perceived hypocrisies of both political opponents and Republican allies. An irritating personality trait that set off a national wave of schadenfreude as the country watched Cruz flip-flop his story on Fox News. Um, yes, yeah, Senator Cruz is in Cancun right now. Um, but, you know, here at his offices, we say big whoop. 
Senator Cruz deserves to relax, unwind, unplug, recharge, you know, like you would a power outlet. Um, or his power grid's going to go out, and we can't be having that. You know, that's too important. So he's got to take care of his lot, which comes from the inside. And um, it's just like, why can't he have his eat, pray, love moment like everybody else can? I am reminded of the old Sun Tzu quote. If you wait by the river long enough, the bodies of your enemies will float by. Well, if you wait at the airport long enough, the same will happen. So far, his only defenders appear to be other disgusting Trump sycophants like Matt Getz and former first boy Don Jr., who complained that people were trying to cancel Cancun Cruise. Even the minister of MAGA propaganda, Sean Hannity, got in on the act, attempting to save Cruz from himself in an awkward and ill-advised TV appearance. Yeah, I didn't see much criticism there early lid that Joe Biden put on things while the people in Texas you could use federal help. But there's always that double standard. Uh, you made the right call coming back. You also can be a father. There's also something called technology. We also know what teleworking is. And I think there's a lot of sanctimony and politics being played in this attack. At the end of the day, this is all meaningless theatrics. But my God, it is satisfying. Part of Ted Cruz's entire stance is being this ideological conservative purist above the petty corruption of Democrats and Republicans alike. But it also shines a sharp spotlight at who is supposedly leading the MAGA movement. It was a truly brain-dead, tone-deaf decision by Cruz to sneak away to Mexico just as the power grid collapsed in his state, leaving millions freezing and in a state of emergency. Hopefully, Democrats can use this rare opening to mount a full-fledged political fight to finally turn Texas blue and eventually bounce Ted from the Senate. And now for the main event. With the flood of pending litigation headed towards Donald Trump like a freight train, it can be difficult to know what to pay attention to as these cases are both complicated and time-consuming. That's why my next guest, Ellie Honig, is the perfect guest for this moment when Donald Trump transitions from public person to possible criminal defendant. Honig is the host of the Third Degree podcast as well as a frequent commentator and legal analyst for CNN. He also spent eight years as the assistant U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York where he successfully prosecuted more than 100 members and associates of La Cosa Nostra, including bosses and other high-ranking members of the Gambino and Genovese organized crime families. His understanding of the law and what potentially awaits Donald Trump in state, federal, and local court gives him the rare ability to see the future. So let's listen now to that conversation. On February 9th, you retweeted an op-ed from Adam Kinziger where he pleaded that, and I quote, if the GOP doesn't take a stand, the chaos of the past few months and the past four years could quickly return. Now that the trial is over and we saw the GOP senators more concerned about their base than the Constitution abdicate their duty and refuse to take a stand, how fearful are you that this will serve to embolden future extremists? Yeah, it's a good question, Michael. So first of all, I have a lot of respect for Representative Kinzinger. I think he's really stood up in an exemplary way. 
Um, the outcome of the impeachment trial, I think, was predictable. Um, in, it, it, largely, I don't think anybody really expected Donald Trump to be convicted. I think it still sent a statement that seven Republican senators flipped over and voted guilty. And by the way, the rest of them, Mitch McConnell being the leader, I don't believe that they believe this whole constitutional thing, right? This idea, oh, you can't, you can't impeach, you can't try a former president. I don't believe that in their heart of hearts they believe that. I think they, they were just looking for, like you said, a political way out. Now, can there be accountability? Impeachment is done. The historical record is there. Donald Trump was, of course, not convicted. He remains eligible to run for president again in 2024. And I believe he probably will. You know him better than me. I'm actually interested to hear what you think about that. But also, like Mitch McConnell said, and I don't always often quote Mitch McConnell, there can be accountability through the courts and that there's a criminal side of that and there's a civil side of that. Now, civilly, we've already seen that start to happen. This week, Representative Benny Thompson from Mississippi brought this suit um, seeking damages, sort of using an obscure law. Um, but I think we could see other personal injury type suits from people who were injured uh, or the families of people who were killed in the riot against Donald Trump and others. And then criminally, there's a lot of different balls in the air here. There's We're going to have DOJ. We've got a new attorney general taking office next week, likely Merrick Garland, assuming he gets confirmed. Uh, he's going to have a lot of decisions to make. We've got the Fulton County DA down in Atlanta, Georgia, looking at interference. We've got the Manhattan DA, who <laughs> you don't need me to tell you about that. So um, there's a lot of different avenues that I think Donald Trump is still going to have to answer to. You know, it was interesting because you said that the outcome of the impeachment trial was predictable. And I agree with you on that. I don't think that there was a person out there that believed that you were going to get 17 Republicans to stand up against their own party and to convict Donald Trump. However, let me tell you how Donald Trump sees it. Donald Trump doesn't see it as a loss the way that others are trying to characterize it. Because the fact is, for him, a win is a win. And for the second time now that they have unsuccessfully convicted him on an impeachment case. So he sees this as a complete victory, which is why, of course, he shot his mouth off with a statement even before the decision came in by his team. Now, despite the fact that he had a real rookie team, defending him against the, the against the house managers it's in donald trump's mind it's an absolute victory it's a win and that he's going to ride that alleged victory all the way to 2024 making allegations that he's going to run again which i could tell you that he is not but he's going to make those allegations so he could continue to fleece people out of money and on top of that to remain relevant. Because for Donald Trump, the most important thing, of course, as I always say, it's his narcissistic ego, is to be relevant. And the fact that he's not relevant right now is the most damaging thing to him that you could possibly imagine. Yeah. And, and you're, you're very right about the way he's reacted to these verdicts. I mean, remember after the first one, he held that bizarre pep rally in the White House where he was, remember, he was pointing out Jim Jordan, uh, he works out and then holding up the newspapers that said acquitted as if it was some great thing. And then Eric Trump, who I know, you know, Michael, had, had a tweet that made me go nuts where he wrote after this verdict, we wrote two and oh, two and oh, like we're two and oh, like we're a football team that's two and oh. I mean, give me a break. It, it's it's. 
a not guilty verdict in impeachment is better than a guilty verdict. But to, to paraphrase Fiddler on the Roof, it's no great honor either. Right. I mean, you've been impeached twice. <laughs> and, we, you know, history was made this time. I mean, little trivia question. Do you know, I'll put you on the spot and very few people know this. Before this impeachment, what was the grand total number of U.S. senators who had voted to convict the president of their own party? I believe two. So it was one. You're close. It was Mitt Romney last year was the first one ever to do that. And now we have seven more, 700 percent increase in that number. So, again, he was he was acquitted. uh, But to, 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 you know, parade this thing around like it's the Vince Lombardi trophy or the Stanley Cup is absurd. Um, You are right, though. That is how he will spin it and has begun to spin it. I'm actually interested to hear you say that you don't think he'll run in 2024. I, I think you're probably, you know, look, you know the man. I've never met him. Um, but I don't know. I mean, did you see that poll this week that that um, among contenders for the Republican nomination in 2024? And he's crushing everybody. He was over 50%. Nobody else was over, I think, six or eight. Number three was Don Jr. I mean, boy, he's. don't you think he sees those numbers and starts getting ideas? Yeah, he's going to ride that for another 200 plus million for all these these suckers that are willing to send money to him, which understand that the pack is really not a pack. It's really for him a slush fund. That's how he sees it. The same way that he used to look at his foundation, the Donald J. Trump Foundation. It was a slush fund for him, and he will spend that money any way that he wants or not spend it and then use it any way that he wants. So I don't believe that he's going to run. I believe that the DA here in New York will certainly ensure to that. I believe Tish James, our um, attorney general, will ensure that. I do believe that there will be other states like Georgia that will end up definitively bringing cases and actions against him that will ultimately prohibit. And more importantly, there is nobody in the Republican Party right now that has announced that they're intending to run. Wait till the field starts to open. Sure, Donald Trump just came off of a presidential election loss and a significant loss. So what will ultimately happen is new people will enter into the sphere, maybe like an Adam Kinziger, right, or others, and then they will turn around and they will start to draw down off of that 50% number. So, you know, um, Ellie, earlier this week, I spoke with Asha Rangappa, who I think you know pretty well, and we discussed how the checks and balances meant to rein in a rogue president seemed to really be no match for Donald Trump, who ran roughshod, over 200 years of precedent. Do the laws that hold our leaders accountable need to be overhauled to meet the times and the types of behavior that we're now witnessing? Is impeachment itself ineffective and just a political weapon that really has no damage ability? Yeah, it's such an interesting question because I agree. Donald Trump sort of gave us the the hypothetical come to life of what if you had a president who just didn't give a damn, right? Who, who, who didn't care about our laws, our norms, our, our expectations, our traditions, et cetera. And I think the answer was he can do a heck of a lot of damage and get away with a heck of a lot, probably more than most people would have expected. And by the way, Donald Trump you know, was not alone in this. He had plenty of enablers, plenty of people 
elsewhere in government who allowed him. And I don't even mean his inner circle. Inner circles are going to be inner circles. But I mean people who are supposed to be guardians of our system and failed. And, you know, to me, number one is Bill Barr, who I'm writing this book about. It's coming out in July. But Bill Barr, you know, lied to the public about what was found in the Mueller report and then came up with all these bogus legal opinions that allowed Trump to resist congressional subpoenas, um, to almost squash the Ukraine scandal before it came out. So enablers like Bill Barr and others, I think, were a big part of the system. And, and to me, it highlighted the fact that we have a pretty good set of rules in place, but not perfect, not infallible. And to, a, I think, a greater extent than I realized or a lot of people realize, our system depends on the decency uh, and the principle of our people who are enforcing that system. And if you have people who don't give a damn and who are willing to do anything to promote themselves, then it really is a stress test for the system. Now, do we need to reform the system? I think there are some changes that we can make around the margins, looking at DOJ. For example, I'll I'll give you one example. We need to have specific separation, more formalized separation now between the White House and the Justice Department. There's long been this wall that's observed that people won't cross over, that presidents won't cross over and tell AGs what to do with respect to prosecution and vice versa. Well, Barr and Trump breached that many times over. And I think there are ways that you can pass laws and internal rules at DOJ that limit that communication, that limit, that that sort of preserve DOJ's independence. When it comes to impeachment, I think the reality is we're stuck. Um, impeachment is created by the Constitution. You know, the Constitution is funny in this way. It doesn't give us, the Constitution does not purport to be a how-to manual. And all it really tells us for impeachment is you have this thing called impeachment, high crimes and misdemeanors, majority of the House, two-thirds of the Senate, and if it's the president, then the chief justice sits. And that's about it. As we saw last week with impeachment, a lot of it was just made up on the fly. And the problem is we'll never be able to change the two-thirds threshold in the Senate without a constitutional amendment, which forget it, you need two thirds of the House, two thirds of the Senate, three quarters of the states. We're never going to fix it the way it is in in the Constitution. The one thing that could be done that I would like to see, call me crazy, we've now had two consecutive impeachment trials with no witnesses in either one. Um, I think the Senate and the House would be well advised to get together and pass a set of internal rules saying, here's how we're going to do it. Is the trial, is the fact finding going to happen in the House or in the Senate, or both? And um, what are the procedures for doing that? Because, you know, the last couple of times, the last two impeachments, the Senate has basically just sort of said, let's just get this over with it. And that I don't think is in the best interest of the country. Yeah, except for the fact they didn't want to put on a shit show again, right? And continue to drag it out. Because again, as we were just talking, it was a predictable determination. These guys that were representing Trump, they could have gotten up and belched the national anthem (laughs) and they still would have Trump would not have been convicted because, again, you don't have 17 courageous Republicans that are willing to call Donald Trump what he is. Right. And that's a that's a big problem because they're more concerned about their jobs than they are about about this country. And I believe one of the ways that we end up resolving issues like this is that you can't be a senator forever, right? The the Constitution and our forefathers did not expect that people were going to make professions out of being politicians. It was supposed to be really nothing more than your service, your duty 
to the country to serve, you know, as a member and a representative of your community, not as a profession. But, you know, I also talk about a lot to many of the guests on the show. Donald Trump, we all know, is not the brightest guy on the planet. And on top of that, he's he's not poor, but he's certainly far from the rich Donald that he likes to portray. What happens if you get a Trump 2.0? Now that they somebody has seen just how far you could push the country, how far you could push the House, how far you could push the Constitution, what happens if you find a Donald Trump 2.0? We'll call him Dr. Evil, right? And he knows exactly now how much more he could try to push it. Someone who's richer than Trump, someone who's significantly brighter than Trump, and maybe even somebody that's more sinister than Donald Trump. Unless we make some real changes here, I'm not 100% certain how we stop our country from really falling down a rabbit hole. I'm not sure who coined this phrase. I, 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 it wasn't me, so I will generally attribute it to somebody smart out there. But somebody said that the, the Trump administration was malevolence tempered by incompetence, meaning I think as you're saying, if Trump was surrounded himself with better people who understood how to manipulate the legal and political levers of power in this country, he could have done way more damage, right? There are several things he tried to do that were struck down by the courts that were fairly easy, could have been fairly easy to, to accomplish, right? I'll, I'll give you one quick example. He tried to repeal DACA, the Dreamers Act, right? The Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. He tried to take that off the books and he failed because his lawyers and the people around him just didn't know how to do it right. And the Supreme Court opinion basically said, hey, guys, you could have done this. Like the president has a heck of a lot of authority to pass or revoke executive orders when it comes to immigration. But the bar is about two inches off the ground. But you morons hit your head on the bar. You couldn't even clear the bar um, because you didn't do it right. Just just procedurally. And so that is a question that a lot of people have. What if you have someone who comes along and he's better informed and surrounds himself with people who better understand the actual laws that we have here. Even if you look at the election, right? A, a friend of mine who's a, a Republican conservative lawyer, a, a respected guy, I won't say who he is, but very, very smart guy said, you know, Trump really could have actually made some headway on his election challenge if he did it the smart way. And I said, well, what's what would have been the smart way? I mean, the way he did it was not the smart way. He lost every case in the courts and he had all these Rudy and people putting in ridiculous lawsuits with lies in them. He said the smart way would have been before the election to systematically challenge all the states that expanded mail-in balloting and to say they're doing it wrong. It's supposed to be the state legislature, not the state secretary of state or not the state courts who were doing this. I mean, we saw a handful, one or two of these lawsuits. But what my friend said is, if I was running this, I would have sent out a team before the election and tried to prevent all these states from expanding their mail-in balloting. And I thought, wow, A, that could have worked, or that could have partially worked. And B, that's scary. You know, you, you surround yourself with folks like my friend who knows this stuff, and not the Rudys and the Jenna Ellis's of the world, and you could end up with a different result. And, and I think that's, that's an important point to take out of all this. Yeah, it definitely is. Seems like every day, everywhere, Practically everyone is connected on their devices. In fact, the average person was connected almost seven hours a day last year. And 64% of adults admit to taking online risks for convenience. And all that browsing, sharing, banking, and shopping makes life easy. 
but it can also expose personal information, making you vulnerable to cybercriminals. There's a lot to your digital life that can put you at risk. That's why Norton 360 with LifeLock makes it easy to help keep it safe, with device security to help block hackers from devices, a VPN for online privacy, and LifeLock identity theft protection to help you keep what's yours, yours. No one can prevent all cybercriminals or identity theft or monitor all transactions at all businesses. But with the all-in-one protection of Norton 360 with LifeLock, you can be less worried about becoming another stat. In my previous line of work, I made a few enemies. Some of them even employed sophisticated technology to steal my personal information right off my computer and hack my phone. That's why I protect myself and my data using LifeLock to hide what matters most from the prying eyes of hackers, trolls, and private security looking to get my personal intel or cause me financial damage. So do yourself a favor and protect yourself. It's that easy. Save 25% or more off your first year at Norton.com slash Cohen. That's Norton.com slash Cohen to save 25%. Now, let me ask you this, Ellie. Despite failing to secure the supermajority, which is 67 senators needed to convict Donald Trump of impeachment, the House managers themselves still put together a remarkable and a moving case that was both effective in appealing to the American people and, frankly, to the historical record. Yeah. Discuss with me how this will be potentially impactful and how will it potentially impact future criminal or civil litigation against Trump when he's tried on the same charges. And let, let me ask you, am I correct in stating that double jeopardy does not apply when it comes to impeachment? Yes. So as to your last question, you are correct. Double jeopardy has no part in anything to do with impeachment. So the fact that Donald Trump has been impeached once, twice, doesn't matter if he was convicted, not convicted. Any prosecutor can bring any charge that they find supported by the evidence. Any civil case can go ahead. There's no double jeopardy. Double jeopardy just just relates to two consecutive criminal prosecutions. So that's not an issue here. Um, the, you know, the, the record itself in this impeachment, I think, was remarkable because in contrast to the Ukraine impeachment, there's really no factual dispute here, right, Michael? It, it would be like what we lawyers would call almost like a stipulated fact record. Right. Because even those Republicans, even the Mitch McConnell's of the world who voted not guilty, really made no contest on the facts of what happened and Donald Trump's culpability here. Now, they, they let him off on this constitutional sort of loophole or escape hatch or whatever you want to call it. But I do think it's it's important to note that that when future generations study this and they will, you look maybe they'll look back at Ukraine and think, uh, well, I guess you can interpret his intent there different ways. And, you know, the arguments that were being made for him by Pat Cipollone and these folks. But when they look back at this one, they, they will know what was said. They will know what was done. They will know how Donald Trump reacted to it. Now, how does this impact potential future lawsuits or, or criminal charges? All of this stuff that just got poured into the record last week, all these revelations about what McCarthy's conversations were with Donald Trump, what Tommy Tuberville discussed with Donald Trump, what McCarthy said to, to Herrera Butler, Representative Herrera Butler, that all, all of that is fair game. All of that is in play. All of that is new leads for prosecutors, for people who want to bring civil suits. And if you look at the civil suit that Representative Benny Thompson brought this week, a lot of the things that he alleges come directly out of the impeachment. So I guess if nothing else, the impeachment process 
um, provided a, a, a bit of an investigative lead um, for other people. And I, and I do agree with you, by the way. I, I think the House impeachment managers did a sterling job of presenting their case. I mean, they were on point. They were focused. They were um, they did a really masterful job of weaving the evidence together. And Trump's lawyers were disastrous and, and I think ill prepared for the moment and, and embarrassed themselves. And by the way, I say that as a Philly kid. I'm from South Jersey, but I was rooting for these guys because they talked like the people I grew up with. And boy, that did not work out well at all. You know, I'm glad you brought up Benny Thompson because on February 17th, in relation to the lawsuit filed by the NAACP and Benny Thompson, you you tweeted the following rule of thumb. It's not a great indicator when a law passed in 1871 to prevent the KKK from using violence to interfere with the federal government becomes relevant again. Can you do me a favor and walk my listeners through what they're charging Trump and his cronies with and how what happened in on January 6th connects with this reconstruction era violence? Yeah, it's a fascinating statute. It's one I've frankly never seen or knew of until it was used this week. So this is a law passed in 1871, right when we were going through reconstruction. And the idea was to prevent the KKK from using threats, violence and intimidation to, to interfere with our government. They didn't want the KKK threatening local or federal officials um, to prevent them from doing their jobs, to from doing their official jobs. And here we are, you know, 150 years later, and it's relevant again, because Representative Thompson's allegations here are, there were, what Donald Trump and Rudy Giuliani and the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers, those are the four named defendants, did here was they used, through the January 6th insurrection, and by the way, Representative Thompson says it goes before that, much as the House impeachment manager said, January 6th was not the only thing here. The January 6th was the culmination of a months-long effort. Um, and the allegation is they use force. I mean, we all saw it, the, the storming of the Capitol, to interfere with, with me, Representative Thompson, with us in Congress from doing our job. Because of course, what were they doing on January 6th? Why was the rally planned for January 6th? That was the date of the final counting and certification of the Electoral College. So it actually seems to fit really neatly. What I do think is a little awkward about the lawsuit is when you get to the remedies part, what are you asking for as the plaintiff? Benny Thompson's asking for damages. He wants personal damages, like as if it was a personal injury case. And he makes a, a, a case that he was, you know, went through trauma and he's a 70 something year old man and was exposed to COVID and, you know, because they were in hiding and all that. But I'm, I'm not sure. It feels like a little bit of an awkward match between what happened and the therefore I ought to get paid. But they are asking for other things, too. They're asking for declaratory judgment, which is a judge just to basically say, you defendants violated this. But if you look at Benny Thompson's lawsuit, it tracks the House impeachment manager's argument almost exactly. So again, I think we're going to see the key thing he's going to have to prove is that Donald Trump's words and actions are legally sort of culpable and responsible for what followed. I think there's a good argument that it does, but I I think he, he will have a defense that it's, you know, the things we heard during impeachment. Well, he never said go in there and tear the place up. And he said, go home and that kind of thing. But we all know it's tempered by other things he said. Sure. But the other positive outcome from this lawsuit is that they may involve depositions of both former President Trump and Rudy Giuliani, amongst other people. In addition, the discovery aspect, right, and the accumulation of texts, emails, and other relevant documents could prove a boom 
for future indictments. Discuss this aspect with my listeners. Absolutely. Donald Trump will be deposed under oath. I mean, probably multiple times. If you look at all the pending civil cases against him, and we've got the one from Benny Thompson, I think we'll see others relating to January 6th. We've got E. Jean Carroll, who I, you know, E. Jean Carroll and Summer Zervos, both of whom have sued Donald Trump for defamation because they alleged that he sexually assaulted them years ago. He then denied it, called them liars and worse, and they sued him for defamation. We've got the suit from Mary Trump, Donald Trump's niece, who claims that Donald Trump and his siblings cheated her out of her inheritance. I mean, that's right there is four or five pending civil lawsuits. And unless you're Ellie, you're forgetting you're forgetting about my civil lawsuit against Trump and the Trump organization for failing to pay the legal fees. Yet another one. And unless those cases get thrown out, dismissed, and I don't see how they will, because his really only argument for throwing them out before was, well, I'm the sitting president. I get special protections. He tried that in the Zervos and the E.G. and Carroll cases. They didn't work. But now forget that. That's off the table. Then they're going to go into discovery mode, which is when the parties have to formally exchange evidence and depositions, which is sworn testimony, will be part of that. So Donald Trump is really looking at He's got a couple options and none of them are great for him. A, he can settle these cases up, but I don't know that he has the ability to pay. And I don't know that the plaintiffs are all that interested in taking settlements. Um, B, he can push this thing ahead. But if that happens, he's going to go through discovery. And all that stuff that he says in those depositions is going to be, and all the other evidence they uncover, whether it's emails, text, we know he's not an emailer, but people around him, whatever, memos, Depositions of other people, depositions of Rudy, of Kevin McCarthy, of Mark Meadows, you name it. All that stuff can be used by prosecutors. I mean, I've absolutely used stuff when I was a prosecutor. I've used information that was generated in civil cases as evidence in criminal cases. There's no prohibition on that. It's normal. It's common. It's legal. So the more information that comes out, the more of a body of, of, of facts that, that exists for people to bring lawsuits. Yeah, the biggest problem for Trump, let's not forget there's also another one, which is the Stormy Daniels case for the defamation, exactly the same. And that one is right around the corner coming up as well. But the problem for Donald Trump as it relates to depositions and so on is Donald Trump lies the way that you breathe, including when he had to provide interrogatories to Congress um, based upon the Trump Tower Moscow and other information that was going on during those hearings. One of the biggest problems, again, is not only does he lie the way you breathe, he doesn't even remember that he's lying because he lies so often about the same thing over and over and over again. In his mind, he's probably changing reality. That's just a fucked up. It's just a fucked up individual who really has no idea that he's lying. And then he gets other people to continue right it's a stalinistic approach if you say something over and over and over again people will start to accept it as the truth the problem is as you said when you have so many documents and you have so many depositions and you have his words it doesn't make a difference how many trump supporters are going to continue to spew the same lie and the same nonsense it's there on paper And that's not disappearing, especially in our incredible age of technology. But I talk, I want to talk to you about, because you have a podcast, which is called Third Degree. Yes. On a recent episode of your podcast, Third Degree, you broke down the investigation of the former president for his alleged election interference. 
Can you put your prosecutor's hat on once again and do the same with my listeners? Yeah. Knowing what you know of the facts and what they may charge Trump with, how good of a case do they have against him? So this is an interesting case. This is the investigation being uh, looked at by the Fulton County District Attorney down in Georgia. Um, and and it's, it's an obscure law because it has to do with election interference. And how often does anyone really try to interfere with an election, right? It's one of these things that's on the books like a no-brainer, but it almost never gets used. And basically what the law in Georgia says is that it is a crime, it is a felony, a serious crime punishable by imprisonment if you try to, if you solicit somebody, which just means to ask somebody, to will, um, to willfully falsify votes or the final certification in an election, okay? Now let's look at what Donald Trump did. We all have heard the call that he made to the Secretary of State in Georgia, Brad Raffensperger. And I think his defense there will be, well, I truly believed I won the election. And all I was doing was asking the Secretary of State to make sure that he was thorough and counted all the votes. But the problem for him is what he says, and this this gets back to your point, Michael, about there being records. What he actually says on that call is really hard to square with that defense. Couple things. One, he says, I need you to find, find 11,780 votes. That word find is not the same as count. And by the way, that number, 11,780, would be enough, would have been enough to give Donald Trump the state of Georgia by one vote. And so what does he really mean there? He doesn't say just make sure you count them all, Brad. He says, find enough for me to win just by one. And inherently, logically, what he's saying there is, I want you to find 11,780 votes, but only the ones for me. Because if he just says, I want you to grab random 11,000, however many votes, some of them are going to be for Joe Biden and he's not going to win. So he's saying, I want you to find that number of votes, but only the ones that went for me, not the ones that went for Biden. That to me is an awfully tough start for Donald Trump. And by the way, and I want to ask you a question if I can, Michael, his defense is going to be, but I truly believed I won the election and therefore I didn't have the sort of bad intent. Do you think, I'm wondering because you know him, do you think Donald Trump I know he's, you know, he lies about this. Does he truly believe that he won the 2020 election? Like in his heart of hearts, if God could come down from heaven and say, Donald, it's just me and you in this room. And I know, I, God, know whether you won this election or not. You have to guess yes or no. If you get it right, I'm going to let you live and you'll be rich and you'll be, you'll be happy. If not, I'm just going to strike you down right here. What do you think Donald Trump says? Put to the proof behind closed doors. What do you think he says? Yes, I won, God, or no, God, I kind of know I didn't win, but I'm, you know, I'm just doing my thing here. Yeah. So he knows that he did not win. Okay. Unfortunately, his fragile ego cannot allow him to acknowledge that he's a loser. So what he does is he continues with that that false narrative of it was stolen from me, woe is me, right? I'm the victim. It was stolen, right? You know, now it's the the machines and so on. But what happens with him because of that narcissistic sociopathic personality? What happens to him is he starts to believe his yeah. own bullshit. And that's the danger. You know, it's one thing if you know that you're lying, then you're just a liar, right? But if you believe or ultimately believe your own lies, that's what brings you into the realm of a sociopath, which is exactly what he is. Donald Trump now truly believes that he was, that the election was stolen from him. But if he sits down and he takes a breath and he lets his wall down, even to himself, 
right? Then he will acknowledge, well, yeah, I, I lost the election because I'm, I was a shit candidate and I had shit people running, you know, the election for me. And I screwed up the pandemic. I screwed up half a dozen other, you know, policies. You know, I just, it just wasn't played right. But you know what? Since, you know, since we're talking about the prosecution of Donald Trump, if you were prosecuting Donald Trump on charges of election interference, who would you want to depose and why? Then answer the same question for me if you can. If yeah. the charges were centered on a conspiracy charge stemming from the January 6th storming of the Capitol. Yeah, uh, good question. So let me give you my witness list for the Georgia case first. Obviously, Donald Trump himself, but in a criminal case, you can't, you know, you can't compel someone to testify. They have a Fifth Amendment right. But even if not Donald Trump, my star witness is Brad Raffensperger, really backed by that tape. I mean, you just play that tape. That's a great starting point. I would want I, I would want to talk to Lindsey Graham, potentially subpoena Lindsey Graham, because remember, the reason Raffensperger taped his call with Trump is because Lindsey Graham had called Raffensperger weeks before that and leaned on him, too. He said, oh, is there any way you can throw out the mail and ballots from certain counties. Now, Lindsey Graham disputes that that's what he said. Raffensperger says it was this way. But you know what? That's what subpoenas are for. Like, let's come on in and let's hear you. I would also want to call the governor of Georgia, Brian Kemp, because Donald Trump called him, too, and said, hey, governor, <laughs> you know, right. hey, Gov, can, can you call a special session of the Georgia legislature and overturn the election? You know, no big deal. And, and the Georgia AG, uh, I think his name is Chris Carr, because Trump called him, too, and said, would you would you mind not opposing my legal e efforts here to overturn the election? I mean, I don't know what's crazier that the president of the United States spent so much time calling these local and state officials in Georgia or the fact that he thought this would actually work. And if you listen to the call with Raffensperger and Michael, I'm sure you're familiar with this. Donald Trump is actually like myth. He he's he can't believe it. He's almost like. But but you're a Republican. Doesn't that mean you just do whatever I say? And Raffensperger's like, respectfully, uh, Mr. Trump, he says you're wrong. Your facts are wrong. And I give him credit for that. And this idea that Donald Trump just thinks like you're on my team. You wear an R. You're, you're we're teammates. Like, why aren't you furiously blocking for me and defending for me? And he is really taken aback by that. And it's you, you probably experienced this firsthand or witnessed this firsthand. But that call is so fascinating because you see every tool of bullying and persuasion. There's anger, there's guilt, there's enticement, there's threats, all in that call to Raffensperger. So that's, I think, a, a bit of what my case would look like if I, if I was putting that together in Georgia. So if you can, let's keep adding on to this. Discuss with me then how much of a factor witness intimidation plays in hampering the prosecution of Donald Trump. And now I'm referring, of course, to Dan Goldman's op-ed yep. uh, for the Washington Post. Even today, his most ardent MAGA disciples place a chill over potential witnesses through death threats and other forms of intimidation. What can be done to make people feel safe to testify or punish those who engage in this behavior? Because I will tell you, I was one of those people. Yep. And I live right now, even to this day, with threats of intimidation and harm mm -hmm. by by Trump disciples that truly believe what Donald Trump says about having the election stolen, about, you know, um, Democrats are bad. Anybody that says something which he doesn't agree with is evil and should be struck down. So what's the answer? 
So Dan's piece, Dan Goldman's piece was exactly what I was going to point to. Dan uh, was a SDNY colleague of mine. We did mob cases together. We did trial together. Um, and I think he makes a great point that that is often um, underappreciated. And that is this sort of threat that lurks out there um, against people who may testify. I, I don't have a neat solution to it, but let me say this. I think the intimidate, witness intimidation sort of takes two forms. One is the sort of traditional, what I'll call the traditional form that you that you went through, Michael, where people, you know, Donald Trump has a lot of people who are loyal to him and, and may do dramatic things. I mean, we just saw an extreme example of that on January 6th. And I understand that there's a fear factor there, a personal fear for personal safety. I dealt with witnesses who, who had that situation all the time, people who turned against the mafia. I mean, look, we had formal channels. We had the witness security program, WITSEC, um, to move people, to relocate people. Obviously, in extreme circumstances, or if there ever came a criminal trial against Donald Trump and somebody was facing a real threat, those options would be available. But a lot of times it just comes down to sort of what, what you've done, Michael, which is you know, just having the willingness and the spine to just say, I'm done with this. Um, and that's not an easy thing to do. And look, you've been attacked. You've, you've suffered. You went to jail. You, you've been threatened. Um, so it's a hard thing to do. I, I guess it's always a function of just how much support and how much power a person has. And I would say the other piece of the, the witness intimidation effect is the political intimidation or, or, or fear that exists. And we just saw it with impeachment. I mean, I don't think there's any real question that the main reason Many of those senators who voted to acquit voted to acquit was because they feared the political wrath that Donald Trump could unleash against them, whether in the form of a primary challenge, in the form of uh, he can't tweet anymore, but, you know, coming out publicly, uh, the equivalent of what used to be a mean tweet, um, alienating that base. And only as that base gets worn away, is that effect going to disappear? That matters for impeachment. We're not, I don't think we're going to have any more impeachments, but it also just matters for whether people have the guts and the willingness to do what Adam Kinzinger and, and, and Liz Cheney and others have done, which is a very hard thing to do, especially if you're in a, a sort of safe Republican district. Um, so it's going to be a function of his fundraising, which directly, as you said before, gives rise to his political power. And as long as that remains in play, we have to be aware of all this. So um, it, it is an important complicating factor here. Well, I give a lot of credit to the Republicans that voted to convict Donald Trump because those people who are listening to this show and others, I've said this many, many times, but when you're fighting, as I did, a guy who has 100 million followers on social media, and he's blowing that dog whistle, telling them that they should attack you, calling you a rat because you're telling the truth to power. You're speaking truth to power. And you have nobody standing up for you. You're basically an island, including members of Congress, which I didn't understand. They were asking me to come in and to speak. They were asking me to risk not just my life, right, but, you know, my family, it's my family security. And that's a, that's a real, that's a real problem. And what bothered me the most is when Congress decided to seek impeachment against Trump for, um, Ukraine in terms of dis, you know, dis, um, allowing the $400 million and so on. To me, I'm saying to myself, what the fuck is wrong with them? Right? If you ask any 10 people on the street, do you care that Trump didn't give $400 million of military aid to the Ukraine? Out of 
out of a hundred people, maybe one person would say, yeah, sure. Congress have voted on it already. You know, it, it, sure. Why not? Right? right. The other 99 would say, why are we giving them money at all? Let's keep the money here in the United States and spend the money where it's needed desperately here in our own country. Right. So what my, my point is what they should have started the impeachment on is witness tampering and obstruction of justice, where I think people would turn around and say, yeah, absolutely. Right. Those are things that the president should not be doing. He's not a dictator. Hey, Donald, if you're listening to this, right, take the shit out of your ears and listen to me carefully. You're not Kim Jong-un. You're not Vladimir Putin. You're not Mohammed bin Salman. Right. You're not Maduro. You're Donald Trump from Queens. End of story. And that's that's really that's the truth. And that's what I think that they should have sought the impeachment, because I think that's a topic that the American people could get their hands around. But I also, since we're talking about Goldman, um, Dan Goldman, Dan Goldman says that the only real remedy is a sweeping criminal investigation that wraps up the Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers, these domestic terrorists, uh, organizations which are currently being investigated, as well as other people who are close to Trump. Do you believe that there's a calculated and a connected intimidation campaign controlled at the top? Well, I'm not sure how coordinated it is, but I think you said the, the key phrase, and it's actually interesting because this is how Representative Benny Thompson says it in his in his lawsuit, that no, are there are we gonna ever find that there were secret communications where Donald Trump was sending specific, you know, back channel emails to the Proud Boys and Oath Keepers? Probably not. Um there's certainly no evidence of that now, but it's a dog whistle. He knows how to signal. They know how to respond, right? You communicate, you put the ideas out there over the airwaves, over Twitter, over whatever. They pick it up. They, they treat him like he's their co- commander. They circulate it back through parlor and, and it's a real communication cycle. And this idea of witness tampering and retaliation is really one of the most underrated aspects. And I agree with you. I agree with Dan Goldman um, of the way Donald Trump did business. And look, in mafia cases, we dealt with this all the time. And, and the beauty of it from the mob's point of view is the, the threats are just out there in the ether, in the environment. They're understood, right? It, it was actually fairly rare that I ever saw a mob case where somebody sat down a witness and said, if you testify, we will do this to you. It happened a couple of times. But more, more often, people from those neighborhoods were just terrified. They just said, I can't come talk to you on a subpoena. Everyone will know. Everyone will know I talked. That's that's uh, that's dangerous for me, and nobody had to say anything. It was just understood, and and even things like this. Like remember, after Ukraine, what did Donald Trump do to every government official who had the guts to come out and testify? Alex Vindman, uh, Marie Yovanovitch, right on down, Gordon Sondland. All of them got reassigned, fired, demoted, whatever your case is. To me, that was textbook witness retaliation, which is a crime. Why else would Donald Trump have fired, demoted these people? They weren't, it's not like they were doing a bad job in their jobs. He even said, he he didn't even make any bones about it. He said, right, because they testified and they lied and all this. I mean, that is normally, forget about it being the president. If this was a CEO of a private company and he was under investigation and five of his people came forward and testified and then he fired them all after the fact, that would be witness retaliation 101. So I think, and also look, going back to Mueller, a lot of what Donald Trump did here, and he did it with you, Michael, was 
try to dangle the carrot and the stick, right? The carrot of pardons and he's a good person. And I'll tell you, he did it with Flynn. He did it with Stone. He tried it with Manafort, with you. And then also the, the back end, which you got the stick, which is if you cooperate, uh, you know, I will, it, he made quite clear, like you're dead to me and I will go after you. And that was part of Mueller's report. Mueller found, again, he stopped short of where he should have Mueller, but he basically found in his list of potential items of obstruction that Donald Trump dangled these pardons to try to dissuade people from cooperating. And I'm one of over a thousand prosecutors, I think Dan's another one, who signed a letter saying this would absolutely be chargeable as obstruction of justice. And by the way, I think it's noteworthy that there was never any counter effort. There was never any thousand former prosecutors or hundred or 10 former prosecutors who said, no, that's not quite obstruction. I mean, this stuff is textbook witness tampering, witness retaliation, and it has a really harmful effect on and I think Donald Trump understands that on, on the, any effort to bring him to accountability. Well, since we're talking about retaliation, why we why don't we just further discuss Donald Trump and Bill Barr's retaliation against me by remanding me back to prison, right? By <laughs> uh, because yeah. I refused not to um, put out a book, basically to violate my constitutional rights, and yeah. yet. They, they remanded me back to prison. And this scary thing is I have heard from certain reporters that there was conversation in Washington a week before that remand that said, don't worry about Cohen. He's going back to prison. Now, if that's true, I mean, which I think is crazy. Any way that you slice it, Judge Hellerstein, in his opinion, specifically stated that the actions of Bill Barr and the Bureau of Prisons and Michael Carvajal was retaliatory against me for my intent to put out and to distribute the book, which, of course, we all know that Bill Barr didn't do a goddamn thing unless Trump directed him to do it. And I'm certain that there are communications between the two that would completely, you know, that would completely corroborate that statement. It's, it's funny that you, you mentioned that because I forgot about it. I wrote a piece about it. When it happened, saying how outrageous it was, and you you did go back, didn't you go back in for a few weeks after that? For fifth for fifteen days of solitary confinement, yeah. bringing me up to fifty one days of solitary confinement based upon retaliation. And I'm not really sure. Again, I understand why Congress doesn't pursue it because to me, it's a carrot on a string. Right. It is illegal for the attorney general and the president to retaliate against a citizen of the country because he won't waive his constitutional rights. I mean, to me, that's the most simplest argument that you can have. And it's right in perfect theme with Donald Trump and what he got Bill Barr to become, which is his attack dog, you know? 100%. So Trump, Trump's lawyers, especially this crazy guy, Michael Vandeveen, were clearly lying to the Senate jury especially about Trump knowing if Mike Pence was in danger. Add that to the litany of misrepresentations and other out-and-out right lies, and it was a pretty shameful defense that they put on. Is there not any accountability for Van Deveen as a lawyer to get up in front of the Senate jury and lie? And I bring this up because I was, I was also charged with a 1,001, Right, a thousand and one violation of lying to of lying to Congress. Right. Do you remember what my lie was to Congress? Yeah, it was about the timing of the Trump Moscow Tower. Correct. Uh, it was more the number of times that okay, I right. spoke to Trump about the failed real estate Trump Moscow project. I stated to the Congress 
that I discussed it with Donald three times when in fact I discussed it with him 10 times. Now, I'm not trying to compare. I did lie. I lied at the request of and for the benefit of Donald J. Trump. I was staying on his message. But I started watching this in this impeachment trial and watching Van Deveen and the others straight up lie to the Senate. They just straight up lied to the Senate. And I don't see any charges being brought by anyone because I would say that their lies are much more fucking significant to this country, to our Constitution, than whether or not I spoke to Trump about a failed real estate project three times or ten times. Who else is going to end up being responsible for their behavior? I almost wondered as I watched the impeachment whether there was some strategy here in sending these guys in as the lawyers because – Remember, they got this case 48, 72 hours before the trial. I mean, some ridiculously short amount of time. And every answer that they gave these lawyers was either uh, either clueless, them basically saying, I don't know. Like at one point they were asked, what, what did your client know about the riot? And what did he do? It was a question from Collins and Murkowski, Senators Collins and Murkowski. And, and the answer was, how am I supposed to know? It's like, he's your client. Or outright misstatements, right? Like Donald Trump did not know at all. And I wonder if there's some, if it sort of is like a a shield both ways. On the one hand, if you have a, normally a lawyer in a situation like this will have fully debriefed, interviewed his client, will know all the facts cold. But I almost wonder because they knew there was going to be this Q&A period, if, if there was some thought of like, better to have these guys who just came on the case three days ago and haven't had a chance and don't know anything. And I wonder how much they ever debrief Donald Trump on the facts, if ever. So they could go in there and when asked these hard questions, just go, I don't know, that's your job to figure it out. And then on the misstatements, I mean, look, can a person be sanctioned uh, professionally or otherwise for lying to the Senate? Of course, including a lawyer. I think the, I think the response would be it, it was a mistake. He hadn't had a chance to talk to his client. He didn't know based on what he did know, there was no evidence. He was learning on the fly like everybody else, or he had a right to challenge the evidence. There would be some wiggle room out of there. I, I don't expect to see Van Deveen disciplined or charged or anything like that. I'm not saying I'm not to make excuses for the guy. I've been very critical of his performance. I thought it was unprofessional and, and um, embarrassing really to an extent, but I don't expect him to be disbarred or, or, or charged or anything like that. Yeah, why not? It should only be me, right? But speaking <laughs> of conspiracy, I mean, it's it's true. Yeah. At the end of the day, three times or ten times, was it meaningful? Was it really relevant based on a failed real estate project? Did it prove anything regarding the Mueller report or regarding any significant evidence within which to impeach Trump or to convict Trump? The answer is no. But I was caught, as you're well aware, between... Mm-hmm. A, a typhoon and a hurricane. And it just, it came all at once. But speaking of conspiracy charges on February 11th, the justice department unsealed conspiracy charges against the proud boys for their role in planning the January 6th riot. If you would back to your, back to your prosecutor's hat, discuss with my listeners what the government must prove to convict them on conspiracy. Yeah. So conspiracy um, has taken on a new meaning, that word, because now when we hear conspiracy, we think of QAnon and, you know, crazy um, false theories. But but as a legal matter, conspiracy simply means an agreement, a meeting of the mind. So if two people are involved in a drug deal together, that's a conspiracy. If two or more people 
go in and rob a bank together, that's a conspiracy. It's really a very simple concept. So what the prosecutors would have to prove here is that the charged defendants, in this case, the Proud Boys, conspired with each other or with others, meaning agreed, agreed, planned it. Hey, guys, let's do this. Let's attack. Let's use whatever means we're going to use to go into the Capitol or to cause violence. If you can prove that, you can prove a conspiracy. And one thing that's very important is that we used to always say to juries and judges would instruct juries in order to prove it, two or more people met in a dark room in a smoke filled room and, and said, hey, let's let's conspire to do this or signed an agreement or anything like that. A conspiracy can be unstated. It can be understood. It can be unspoken. And that's where you get into your I think what is going to be your disputed areas when it comes to look, the Proud Boys, I imagine DOJ has proof that they were communicating with each other, text, email, parlor, whatever, however they communicate. But it gets more complicated when you start bringing in other people who never physically met in person, but who sent messages that were then received and acted on. And and that's a trickier case for conspiracy. I still think it's a makeable case for conspiracy. Um, but but that's where you're going to see that sort of play in in the legal arena. You know, so I have to ask you because you we, when we were talking about Michael Van Deveen and you were you are very critical of his and the other um, counsel that were representing Trump in the impeachment trial. You're very critical of them, and in that respect, I actually agree with you because I found them all to be lying, and there were just this litany of lies and misrepresentations. But I want to bring you back for a quick second to February of 2019 when you were with Christiana Amanpour. Ah. And you were actually evaluating my appearance before the House Oversight Committee. Do you remember the grade that you gave me on my performance? I I think, well, let me tell you what I remember. I, I remember very clearly watching your performance that day. I think I said you were a fairly typical cooperator in that the gist of what you were saying seemed like it was true and was corroborated, but there were things that I had questions about. Overall, I thought you were going out of your lane to attack Trump at times on things that weren't relevant um, and overextending at points. And that's my memory. Is that correct? Well, you gave you gave me a B minus. All right. And so I want you to. There you go. Well, I want you to. Well, I never got B minuses. That that would make my parents happy. But I was going to say it was B minus would be minus I, higher I, or lower. I, than I may not. I may I may now task you to go back and to look at those seven, eight hours of testimony and think think back and now take a look to see a lot of the things that you may have thought were overreaching or critical or excessively critical of Trump, sadly, for this yeah. country turned out to be true. Okay. And I want to hire Gray. I do think, Michael, that your the things you said have been um, largely, as I said at the time, but largely corroborated and backed up by things we know. And a lot of the predictions you made have come true. So uh, I, I do. Ellie, there's a mistake. There's a, there's a mistake that you actually made. What was that? I was never a cooperating witness. True. You know true. that, right? I never no, I signed a cooperating agreement with the SDNY. I never had a cooperating right. agreement with the House Oversight. I mean, Elijah Cumming, God rest his soul, turned around at the beginning and said, if you do not tell us the truth, he goes, I will nail your ass to the cross. <laughs> and he was not jo he was not joking. Yeah. You know, well, but let me say this. I mean, I, I was interested in that because, you know, in order to be a cooperator with Southern District and to get that if we call the 5K letter, right, which is the best thing you can have at sentencing, you have to be willing to answer all of their questions, even the super uncomfortable ones, not just about yourself, but anyone around you. And and what I always had surmised is and, and it's in their brief, really, 
they do say this in the brief that you were not willing to answer all their questions about everything. So I, I don't know. And that's true. That's yeah. true because in fact, and I have it in our pre-sentencing, the Petrillo sentencing memo. I was, I should not have been charged with tax evasion. I should not have been charged with a HELOC violation. Yes, I paid Stormy Daniels. I did it at the direction of and for the benefit of, right? Individual number one, Donald J. Trump. Did I lie to Congress the three times versus the 10 times? I sure did. Why? Because it was done at the direction of and for the benefit of Donald J. Trump. Those were the charges that I was guilty of, but the others were just pounded on me by the Southern District of New York. Why? I do believe that there was, um, from a higher source, whether it was the Attorney General coming from Trump in order so that he could defend himself and say it has nothing to do with me, it had to do with Michael's businesses, because here's the thing, when it comes to tax evasion, the Judge um, William H. Pauley III made a claim that what I had done was I created a sophisticated method of avoiding the disclosure of the money that I ultimately owed. And what people don't know is that money was paid prior to sentencing. But what he's wrong about is a sophisticated method would not mean that you put the money into the bank that's located at the base of the building that you live in. In this case, it was Capital One Bank. That's not sophisticated. The actual right. word for that, Judge Pauly, is unsophisticated. <laughs> and we will find out. We will ultimately find out because Buddha has a very famous quote, which is the three things that will always rise is the sun, the moon, and the truth. And my truth uh, will come out. And I will, one day I will, I will sit before Judge Pauly. And I will ask him to his face, you need to tell me why you listen to the prosecutors, to the guys like um, Thomas McKay or Nick Roos or the other prosecutors. That's going to be part. This is all going to be part of the next book that I'm that I'm working on. But I would like to know exactly yeah. what it was that he thought was sophisticated about a guy having money deposited, not overseas like Manafort, with no fake wires, no fake instructions, no fake nominees no fake invoices, put every dollar into Capital One Bank. Again, that's located in the building you live in. I, to me, the whole thing is stupid. But, you know, as we're winding down, I want to yeah. switch gears for a moment. And I want to talk to you about someone who I fucking despise, Bill Barr. <laughs> fucking hate him. In hindsight, his resignation before the Capitol riot now looks presently suspicious. At least it does to me. Discuss with me the role that Bill Barr played in enabling Donald Trump up until his abrupt resignation. So Bill Barr, to me, is the number one enabler of Donald Trump throughout his presidency. And there's there's a lot of people on that list. But I put Bill Barr first, even though he was only attorney general for, for the last two years. So a, a couple things about Bill Barr. First of all, Bill Barr, I believe, has direct responsibility and indirect responsibility for what happened on January 6th. And I mean that in two ways. First of all, indirectly, Bill Barr got Donald Trump off the hook on the Mueller report. Let's remember back to what Bill Barr did. It's so dishonest and it's so manipulative. He gets this report from Robert Mueller, this scathing, not te technically an indictment, but this scathing report. And what does Bill Barr do? He puts out that four-page letter, right? And he basically takes out all the bad stuff from the Mueller report, keeps in all the good stuff for Donald Trump, and he puts it out there, and then he holds back the actual report for almost a full month. And that 
manipulation, which Robert Mueller himself called dishonest. And a federal judge in D.C. said was dishonest and was designed to protect the president. That, I believe, got Donald Trump through the Mueller report when it would have sunk any other president in our history. Start with that. The other thing about Bill Barr that is so outrageous is, remember, after the January 6th riot, Bill Barr, now he's suddenly courageous. He comes out and he says, well, that was a disgrace. And he, and he sort of says Donald Trump. He, he blames Donald Trump to some extent for what happened on January 6th. This is after Bill Barr has left office. Well, guess what? Guess what Bill Barr was doing for months leading up to the election? He was promoting this absolute lie about election fraud. He went on an interview with NPR and he promoted this idea of, oh, there's a really grave threat of massive voter fraud. When they asked him if he had proof, he said, no, but it's obvious. He went in front of Congress when he testified in July and he said, oh, massive voter fraud, voter fraud. And then after those two things with the whole world watching, he went on CNN with an interview with Wolf Blitzer and he said the same thing. And when Wolf Blitzer pressed him, he said, well, we have this one case down in Texas with 1,700 fraudulent ballots. Turned out that was not a federal case. That was a state case. And you know how many ballots were that there were at issue there? False ballots? One. One ballot. He lied over and over again. He spread the big lie that in, helped inflame that crowd and send that crowd into the Capitol. And for that, I don't care what Bill Barr says after the fact when he's trying desperately to rehabilitate his image. For that, Bill Barr is culpable and responsible. And I think Bill Barr throughout his tenure, this is what my book is about. It's coming out in July. It's called Hatchet Man. Um, yes, but before you go there, before you yes, go there, yes, right? Um, you know, I want to take just a couple of seconds more to talk further about Bill Barr please. because I want to plug, I want to plug your book. And I know, I know that he's the subject of your book, right? That's coming out this summer called Hatchet Man. And yes. I definitely want to read it, and then I may even have you back so we can talk about it. But sure. what's one surprising nugget from the book that you could drop on my listeners that they would, you know, really be interested in? And can you describe to my listeners um, the unique vantage point that you had that allows you to write this book? And then finally, what do you think will Bill Barr's legacy be to the Justice Department that he abused so badly at the behest of Donald Trump? And, you know, last, then finally, I want to ask you one last thing. You think I should sue Bill Barr, ultimately, personally, for violating my constitutional rights? So let me, let's go back to your book first. All right. So first of all, with respect to my vantage point, and I think this is why I was sort of perfectly situated to write this book. I worked in DOJ for eight and a half years, and then I was a state prosecutor in charge of criminal justice in New Jersey for another five and a half. So I was a prosecutor for 14 years, and I was raised in DOJ. And by the way, my eight and a half years at DOJ were almost exactly equally split the last four years of George W. Bush, the first four years of Barack Obama. So I had half under a Republican administration, half under a Democratic administration, and it didn't matter. The politics of it never mattered. And the things I was taught at DOJ were all you have is your credibility and your independence. And what I do in the book is I tell war stories. I talk about specific cases I did, trials I did, things that I learned from judges, from prosecutors, from witnesses. And I say, and then through that, I learned this important principle of being a prosecutor. Now, Bill Barr, important point of the Bill Barr story, the guy never prosecuted a case in his life. He was never on the front lines. He never stood up in front of a jury and said, Bill Barr for the United States. And so he didn't understand that stuff and he didn't care about those principles. And I talk about how he destroyed what I call the prosecutor's code. Things like 
you never lie. You never fudge the truth. If there's facts that don't work for whatever agenda you're trying to push, you, you acknowledge them. You deal with them. You don't fudge the truth. We saw Bill Barr do that all the time. You never inject politics into your decisions. Look at Bill Barr. What two cases of the 150,000 or so cases that were charged by DOJ in Bill Barr's tenure, what are the only two cases that he came down from his seat as attorney general and undermined his own prosecutors on? Michael Flynn and Roger Stone. Gee, why do you think that was, right? I mean, he's politicizing DOJ. Um, Those are the two big criticisms I have of Bill Barr. I think his lasting legacy will be as the worst attorney general we've had in modern times, maybe ever, because he saw DOJ only as a tool to promote and protect Donald Trump. But here's where the nugget comes in that you asked about, Michael. Here's a surprising nugget. My bottom line on Bill Barr is he was willing and eager to do whatever had to be done to protect and promote Donald Trump. But, but I don't believe Bill Barr viewed Donald Trump the same way a, maybe a Stephen Miller did as this wonderful, you know, miraculous figure to be worshiped and admired. I make the argument that Bill Barr viewed Donald Trump as a vessel, as a vehicle, as somebody who sort of shared his overall view of the all-powerful presidency. But here's what, what I found that I, that I think is really interesting about Bill Barr. We did some digging and we found some speeches that Bill Barr had given back in the early 90s when he was first AG or shortly after his first term. He was AG twice, right? He, he did it now, but he was also AG from 91 to 93 under George H.W. Uh, Bush. And, and what I realized is, Bill Barr is really an extremist. And I don't mean that legally. He's a standard sort of federalist society, powerful executive branch guy legally. That's fine. That's within the mainstream. But he has this extremist view that the world is governed and should be governed by this small group of very powerful religious people who are fighting this battle against secular chaos. And he thinks that all of the bad in the world and society is due to there not being enough religion and to this sort of non-religious folks out there who just want to sow chaos and they're responsible for the breakdown of the family. At one point in an early speech, he rails against the, quote, the homosexual agenda, how that's tearing us apart. And he really has these sort of extreme culture warrior views on the world. And so I think he viewed his, his shot to become AG again and by the way, something he auditioned for, forget about his whole thing about, oh, I didn't want to do this. I just thought it was, I was needed. BS. He absolutely auditioned for this role. I think he viewed this as a chance to not necessarily, I want to go in there and uplift Donald Trump, but I want to protect this guy because this guy is a vehicle for me to impose my culture warrior views on the world. Which was no different than Steve Bannon, Steve Miller, Jared Kushner, Ivanka, the whole, the, all the, all the grifters. But, right. uh, Ellie, I really do want to thank you, um, for your time, for your insight. Um, you know, br- brilliant, just absolutely brilliant. And, um, you know, I look forward to reading your book, uh, coming up, Hatchet Man. And, um, I wish you the best of luck on your podcast as well. And, um, you want me, you want me to reciprocate? I'm more than happy. Thanks, Michael. I really appreciate it. It's always interesting to talk to you. The same. (laughs) All right. And now for today's mea culpa. Watching Ted Cruz sweat under the lights for his brain-dead decision to flee the state of Texas for sunnier climes has been enjoyable. That said, it also reveals something quite sad that infects the character of those who cross paths with Donald Trump. 
He has the rare ability, like many cult leaders, to make you act and imitate his absolute worst qualities. It's a way of showing loyalty and obedience to the boss, but it's also indicative of his own sociopathy when you try and become the boss, thinking that if you act enough like Donald Trump, you will somehow become him. Cruz is but one example of this behavior. You have the Trump children who attempt painful imitations of their father in public, aimed at getting his love and attention. You also have the voices of conservative media and politicians like Matt Goetz, Marjorie Taylor Greene, and scores of state and local politicians who have turned themselves into imitators of the Donald. It barely works for him, and Trump is an acquired taste at best. When the rest of the world then takes on the behavior, it becomes a disturbing funhouse mirror, one that I luckily escaped, but I also understand how destructive it can be for those who fall under his sway. My hope is that Cruz may find his moment somehow instructive and use it to lift himself up and off Donald Trump and hopefully towards becoming his own person once again. The world doesn't need any more Trumps. We've got few too many right now. Ted Cruz has enough trouble just being Ted Cruz. And thanks for listening. Maya Culpa is brought to you by LSJ Media and Audio Up in association with Midas Touch. And it's hosted by me, Michael Cohen. Produced by Audio Up by Jimmy Jelnick and executive producer Jared Gustav. And it's edited by Tyler Dawson. Please stay tuned as we focus on the changing political moment and this unprecedented transfer of power. I'll be with you every step of the way. Mea culpa. Nothing but the truth. This is my mea culpa. Support for this podcast comes from Pluto TV. Need an escape? Drop into Pluto TV for a world of free TV. Stream hundreds of channels and thousands of movies and shows all for free. Yeah, free. No subscriptions, no fees. Imagine 24-7 channels of Narcos, CSI, Star Trek, Survivor, and everything else from hit movies to binge-worthy TV shows, the latest news, live sports, comedy, and more. What are you waiting for? Download the free Pluto TV app for Android, iPhone, Roku, and Fire TV and start streaming now. Pluto TV. Drop in, watch free.